From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, talking about the cash that was promised for businesses that have been vandalized. In many cases, businesses that have been vandalized repeatedly. The B.C. government announced uh, not so long ago that there would be grants available for Vancouver cafes and shops, those struggling with the cost of the rise in post-pandemic vandalism. Of course, not just in Vancouver, and we're seeing it in other places as well. Joining us to talk a bit more about this and what the program could look like is Jeff Bray, the executive director of the Downtown Victoria Business Improvement Association. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me on, Jill. I appreciate it. Uh, This was a BC government announcement, again, talking about uh, providing grants. These would be grants of up to about $2,000 for small businesses to help repair those costs, all of those costs associated with property crimes, broken windows, uh, other forms of vandalism. What was your reaction when you first heard that the BC government was going to be doing this? Well, you know, we were certainly very pleased. Uh, we at the uh, BC Business Improvement Association, which represents BIAs from across the province, have been working with government for about 10 months on a province-wide response to some of these challenges. There's been several cities that have had their own programs, Victoria, Vancouver recently, Prince George. Um, and we really said that this is in response to some social policy decisions that are having adverse impacts in neighbourhoods right across the province uh, and that it was really time for the province to step up and to give some direct support to especially small and medium-sized businesses being impacted. So we're just delighted that you know government's heard that call uh, and has uh, announced the uh, program and the funding and now they're just going to go uh, through the process to, to find a provider. Uh, we spoke to a, a Vancouver coffee shop owner a, a few days ago, I guess uh, just over a week ago, uh, John Neat, who is the CEO of JJ Bean. Uh, in one, in, he has several or a few locations, but shut down one of his locations because of this exact issue, saying uh, they were having windows broken every month to six weeks. People were stealing things to the point they moved everything off the counters and didn't have anything that could be taken from the counters or the shelves. And instead of, of trying to fight this, he broke the lease a couple of years before it was even up. Are you hearing about that in other neighborhoods, other cities as well? Certainly there are, you know, in, in urban centers, large or small across the province, indeed across North America, we're seeing this type of behavior. It's not everywhere. Sometimes it's only limited to a block or two. Um, in Victoria, we certainly have a couple of blocks where we have these challenges. So, yes, we are hearing um, of businesses that are saying it's too difficult to operate or my staff don't feel safe or my customers and clients don't feel safe and are closing as a result. I mean, we have uh, um, in downtown Victoria a national uh, chain of convenience stores. They've closed two of their locations for that very reason. Um, the amount of merchandise walking out the door, it was cheaper for them to pay a lease and not operate than it was to, to operate and pay the lease. So it is a challenge. We know that, that some of the people that are on our streets are, are struggling with severe mental health and or addiction challenges. Um, but the way in which we're delivering services that are community-based are not sufficient. And neighborhoods and businesses are paying some of that price. So the province is recognizing that, I think, in the short term. Um, we would love to have this be a short-term program because the province steps up with better care for these individuals where we don't have these same problems. 
But in the meantime, the small businesses are hit with higher costs, higher property ca- costs, health employer tax, uh, you know, staffing challenges. And every time you have to spend $1,000 to fix a window, that's an awful lot of widgets you need to sell to make that up. So this is helpful. This is meaningful. Uh, and uh, we look forward to the program launching next year. Will it be enough, though, when we're talking about grants of up to $2,000 to help smaller businesses recover the costs of those repairs, those broken windows, graffiti? When you're talking about uh, a convenience store shutting down because they can't deal with that level of theft, uh, the cost of a broken window, uh, even if you have insurance, uh, I mean, is is $2,000, a $2,000 grant even going to come close to being enough? Well, you know, obviously there are probably always going to be a few businesses that will be highly targeted for whatever reason. But quite frankly, $2,000 is better than zero. And that's what they had available to them now. So I do think it is something. But again, uh, you know, we know that, for instance, there's individuals that are repeat offenders that create a lot of this havoc. Uh, We need those individuals to be held in remand while they're awaiting trial. Uh, We know there are some people who are struggling so badly with addictions and mental health that they actually need, you know, some kind of involuntary care to actually help them. Um, These types of things will make a big difference uh, because it's a small group of individuals creating most of the challenges. Um, But in the interim, I I know that we've been running this program in Victoria for three years now. Our our city has, has partnered with us on this. And I can tell you I've had small businesses in the office here uh, saying that, that that almost was the difference between them staying open and closing. So it does make a big difference. Uh, sure, more would be better, but $10 million to support small businesses is, is a pretty good investment. And, and again, you know, the province will be monitoring this and seeing whether or not the pool needs to be larger or they need to amend the rules in the future. And certainly we will uh, be advocating on behalf of all of our businesses across the province how the program's working and how it can be improved. It's interesting when you say that. And we've also heard from police when we looked at the report that was done into repeat offenders. I mean, the numbers were pretty staggering as far as like what you were saying, the small number of repeat offenders that are responsible for the large number of crimes that we're talking about. I would think, too, though, business owners, I mean, business owners are taxpayers as well. Seeing this money, yes, it's helpful. Like you said, it's it's more than, than nothing. Every little bit helps. But frustrating, too, that this is only continuing because of this small number of individuals who are allowed to keep doing it. Well, and, you know, the the province did announce the nine regional hubs that uh, were really going to try to focus uh, on those repeat uh, offenders with respect to making sure parole, probation, corrections, the, the police, uh, Crown prosecutors are able to properly identify these individuals so that when they do appear to court, there's a better chance that they could be held in remand. Ultimately, the federal government holds the pen on Bill C-75 that uh, needs to be amended to give the courts the ability to hold this small group of people who are just churning through the indoor and outdoor constantly so that you know, we can have them held responsible for their actions. That would make a huge improvement in the number of broken windows, the, uh, the amount of smash and grabs and other things that are happening. Provinces moving in that direction, they are limited by the federal legislation. And again... You know, uh, part of it is, you know, every level of government has to do what they have control and together we can make a big difference. But we can't wait for other levels of government to do things before we take action. So this is another small piece of trying to make things better for small businesses and for their staff. Um, And, you know, we we keep pushing. 
government's responding, and you know, we'll continue to work with government to really make sure that our small businesses can, can not just survive but uh, thrive, um, and every level of government needs to do their part. And Jeff, I'm curious too, when you talk about what businesses are facing and how they're dealing with this, do you think this money could be used as well for, even if it doesn't look pretty, talking about things like the shutters that might come down at night and ways to really deter crime rather than say, fixing the windows, fixing things that are broken and continually doing that? Yeah, there's actually, there are two two uh, components to the grant. People can either apply for the grant to, to fix the broken window, or they can apply for a grant to improve the security of, the, of their building. And, that, and that's certainly what we have here in Victoria. So we do have businesses that have, you know, bought better locks or film on the windows, um, and others who have used it to repair the, the door that was kicked in or, or the broken window. So there are two components to it. And so there will, I'm, I'm sure there will be businesses that will take advantage of the ability to actually do more preventative work on their business to actually eliminate the opportunity for some of these things to happen. You can't you know, eliminate everything, um, but there is that opportunity. And so I think you'll see lots of businesses will take advantage of that. Um, because it'd be better to prevent a robbery than to deal with it after the fact. Right. And you mentioned kind of the timeline, but do you know when businesses will start seeing this money? No. I mean, I know that the announcement talked about, you know, having it ready to start flowing next year, and there will be a retroactive period back to this year. So, you know, obviously a business may well have done the work some months previously before they're able to apply, but they will be still eligible for the grant. Um, the, the province has uh, put out a request for proposals, and so different groups will be applying to be the administrator of this program. And once it's up and running, uh, I think those details will be released uh, pretty quickly. Jeff Bray, always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for making the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Joe. As you heard during the news, Ottawa is introducing a new pilot program. It will be a three-year program to incentivize employers to follow worker protection rules by making it easier for employers to hire temporary foreign workers. Under the program, companies with a good track record would only need to prove they require temporary foreign workers every three years. Currently, they need to do that every 18 months. This was announced earlier today in Delta. Employment Minister Randy Boissonneau also also talked about how workers need to be compensated. Look, that's one of the changes we made. We made sure that the that foreign workers weren't tied to a particular employer or even to a particular occupation, and um, that could still work in the sector. So, if you're talking about a food service, uh, food food supervisor, for example, like here, you would be able to work in another similar occupation but with a different employer. So. Those are things we learned when the program wasn't running so well uh, in the in the early 2000s, and we made sure that under our watch, we took steps to make sure that those workers are protected. That was Federal Employment Minister Randy Boissonneau. Joining us now, Ian Tostenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Association. Ian, so great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Jill. Happy afternoon. I know this program is going to start with agricultural companies being able to be part of the pilot come September, then other employers being able to join in January. What does this mean for the restaurant and food services industry? 
Well, it's a healthy dose, Jill, of common sense. I mean, we've been trying to work on a program very similar to this um, with the provincial government. We could talk about it in a second, where you, you know, and we keep saying the government is that, you know, 99% of the employers in, in, in this province are hardworking, earnest people. They need some help here. And so they were having to go through this, this administrative burden of having to prove their worth their financials, their wherewithal, every single time they wanted to bring in a skilled foreign worker. And the administrative burden was quite high. So this this really does a great job at streamlining that. Um, it adds another year for the approval for uh, the foreign worker. And um, it also just gives the employer, um, well, the employee actually, which I didn't realize until I just listened to this cast, that uh, the employees now can move between employers, which is a good thing because that just puts a little competitiveness in. And as we have always maintained on our program that we run in British Columbia, it's it's the worker is first in this. I mean, without you know without that strong worker, we've got nothing. So we're really pleased about this. I wish that the pilot would happen a bit sooner than uh, than that, but then. You know, frankly, we're going into a bit of a slower period. So if we've got this in place for next spring, say, early next year, um, we would be quite happy with that. Right. Okay. Uh, the The announcement today also says uh, talked a bit about the temporary foreign worker program, saying it's designed to attract workers from abroad to fill those short term labor market gaps where no Canadians or permanent residents right. are available. Uh, are there still a lot of jobs, specifically with restaurants, where it is difficult to find people to fill those jobs? Yeah. So it's you know we're running about twenty five thousand people short on a base of two hundred thousand. Uh, employees that's really rough numbers and the other one that's interesting is that the provincial government came out about about two months ago and said bc needs in the next 10 years a million new workers uh to uh, to take take care of most people that are retiring and stuff leaving the workforce and 30 percent, so 300,000 of that million has to be will have to become from immigration because we don't have the uh, enough populations for so people that say Oh, immigration and this and the causes these problems. It's not true because we've always been a country of immigration. I was saying today, the the railroad railroad was built on immigration, and it's still the same way today. We don't have enough population, and as our population um, in the demographics in British Columbia, as people get older and retiring, it even gets worse. So yeah, it's it's not just us, Jill. It's construction. I mean, it's everywhere. Retail. Everybody's looking for workers. So. This is this is this is really really good timing in this. Uh, but when you talk about the timing uh, too, and uh, get what you're saying that maybe we're going into a bit of a lull, but then we'll be into uh, the fall and uh, the the December busy part, uh, a busy time hopefully for uh, the restaurant industry. Would it be better if if we know these vacancies are there now that restaurants, food service companies would be able to apply right now for these? Yeah, and this is the dark side of this is that uh, if you were to apply Jill's restaurant and you need to hire, you, you, you know, you've been able to hire and the approval to hire a foreign worker, uh, so we call them skilled foreign workers in our case, because they're mainly, a lot of ours are, are uh, in the kitchen and they're very skilled. <laughs> Believe me, they're so happy to come to Canada. And, um, but the process is, is that the, the employer has to first go to the provincial government. And this is unique in British Columbia and Saskatchewan only and apply for uh, what they call a certificate. And the government will give the employer a certificate, at which point that then the employer can 
move on and do the necessary immigration paperwork for the federal government. That adds in British Columbia two to three months because of the backlog in BC. And so when you look at, and to your point is there's a sense of urgency here. If this is only on, on the basis of the federal government, we would probably get a worker in five months, but because BC weighs in this one, it's probably eight to nine months and we're not competitive with Alberta, and that's not a good thing. We have to be competitive in a world market for labor. It's mobile, and if you go to Alberta, you can get in probably a, a job in five months. So we're trying to get the B.C. government, and they're, they're making motions to do this. Um, they've put workers' rights up front. We understand that. But at the same time, we believe that there is this you know, trusted employer approach in British Columbia, like the federal government just took, that would uh, you know, accelerate these programs because when you when you look at this, the, the, what happens or what hurts the most when you don't bring in the workers for your, your workforce is your economy. Right. So why is that that BC and Saskatchewan have that kind of extra layer of bureaucracy? Because you would think too, if you're a temporary foreign worker, you and if you your goal is that you want to get to work, then wouldn't you go the route that gets you there faster? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a checkpoint. And, and we actually, I think we're the only organization in BC that said, sure, we, we agree with this. That's, uh, it's a checkpoint to make sure that the employer that's bringing in that particular uh, foreign worker is uh, recognizes their responsibilities. I mean, you know, you're dealing here with not combined, we're dealing with people. And we really feel that's important. So to say, you know what? We just don't want anybody having access to um, these resources. We want to make sure the employer is in fit financially. You know, they're, you know, they're operating, they've got a good business because there has been uh, in the past situations in all industries where uh, the employers weren't great to the foreign workers. And so we thought it was a great checkpoint, but that worked, (laughs) that worked really well, Joe, when we had 250 applications a month. BC now is running at three to four to five thousand applications a month on this particular program. So uh, they're backlogged. And we said to the provincial government, take a trusted employer program. If Jill has had a track record, we can tell you that she can tell you that she can sign an affidavit and say that I've I've had foreign workers before. I've got a great track record. I don't have the employment standard issues outstanding, blah, blah, blah. Let her go, like let her get on with it. But to hold her up waiting for the pile to be reduced in someone's office is not right. So I think I think we're getting there. I think we're starting to see that there's ways of doing it. But it's it's a, it's a worker protection point of view here in Saskatchewan. But because BC has way more demand for workers in Saskatchewan, you can get that approval in a half a day in Saskatchewan where it takes two to three months in BC. Hmm. Uh, and something that you touched on earlier as well, and that uh, the minister said there uh, in the clip that I played, was that workers will be able to move from an employer to another employer if they choose to. Uh, I, I would imagine that makes it so employers need to make sure that they're following the rules and they're providing a good place of employment. But is there a concern there that one employer is then going to do all of the paperwork only to have a temporary foreign worker come and not actually end up working there, go on to somebody else. That's a real problem. And we have to sort of figure that out, whether there's going to be some compensation. If, if, the, if, the, if the worker moves from you know, A to B and E and A went through all the, the costs of doing that. So that's one of those details that we'll probably have to negotiate a bit. 
but I think that's a question of fairness. I think it also does so, and I think the other side of it is that it should give the minister in BC comfort knowing that employees now, if they're with a bad employer, aren't stuck there. And, and, and previously, that's what ha- would happen. If you came in and you were working for an employer and they were a bad employer, you didn't have much choice. I mean, you had to work there or you, you had to head home. This way, we can make sure that a bad employer is going to be outed. And we believe that should happen. And so that might just take a help the minister here relax a bit more in terms of making sure that workers' rights are protected. But I think the financial side of it, because it's a thousand dollars to the um, federal government to, to do the application, and then in our case, um, it's about less. It's another th- couple thousand dollars to have all the process taken care of. So we do everything for you, from the paperwork to the identification of candidates. We do it through a partner, our immigration partner, who's extraordinarily good. And so, but now you're into it for three thousand dollars plus time. So you're right. If all of a sudden that employee comes in and goes, see you later, Jill, I'm going across the street, that's a bit of a problem. So we have to make sure that we put some checks and balances. However that looks, well, I'm not sure yet. And so that's $3,000 per applicant. Yeah, pretty much. That'll um, that'll get you your federal fee. That's our fee. I mean, there's, there's guys out there charge way more. And I just caution anybody, um, if you're really interested in integrity, call us, call me about this, because we take this really seriously. If you bring a worker in, in our view, from anywhere else in the world, anywhere, is that um, that is such a precious asset. And we want to make sure we actually we actually go to the extent of meeting the workers when they come into the airport, picking them up at the airport, taking the service Canada, making sure they have a cell we help them um, in their registration with the federal government, making sure that they've got points of view before they come here on accommodation. Like we do the whole thing because you want to create a good impression. These people are coming here eventually to become Canadian citizens and they're so excited and they're so good and they're so skilled and they're so talented and so trained. We don't want to lose them. And they're also putting a best foot forward because two years into the process, they'll start to apply for their, uh, immigration status to become a Canadian citizen. And that's all based on how well they did, you know, coming into Canada. There's a lot of tension in the system for everybody to perform at high levels. And I think yes, that's so, so important around to make sure that we, that we recognize that. And uh, Ian, just one other question, because I know this will come up as well. When you talk about the fact that we do need immigration, that this is much needed for so many of these jobs. What about housing, though? Because we hear hear so often as well, many times employees in food services, it is impossible to find housing. We have a really interesting perspective on that. Well, that is interesting. It's just, you know, you're right. But the... um, what we we have probably now over the last four years maybe two to three thousand uh, workers in the marketplace, and um, we know where they all are through our immigration consultant. And what he does is he puts out a he puts a note out and says Jill's wherever, and um, she's going to be working at restaurant X, and so and Jill's going to be looking for accommodation. And you know what will happen is that Jill will end up probably sharing a room or getting a room or sharing someone's house. It's, they, they sort of take care of them, themselves. Hmm. This jokingly said today, 
they're not looking for the Tesla waterfront house when they come here. They're looking for nice accommodation so they can work really hard. And so far, we haven't had that problem. So we're we're seeing a doubling up. And, and they'd be really happy. Oh, Jill's coming from wherever. Jill, come and, you know, so you can come and stay with us. All right. Well, it's all, it builds a community as well. Well, I'm, that, that's great to, to hear that, to, that, that that part is being worked out as well. Ian, we'll have to leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining the show again. Jill, I appreciate it. Have a good afternoon. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, if you have spent any time driving along sections of Highway 1, getting out of Metro Vancouver, maybe going through the Langley, Abbotsford, Chilliwack areas, you have likely been stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic, whether it's because of construction that's taking place on the highway or just volume. It can be very frustrating, and it can take a long time to get to, well, wherever you are going. That is why several chambers of commerce in the Fraser Valley have come together urging the province to speed up the expansion of Highway 1. And joining us to talk more about this is Corey Redekop, CEO of the Greater Langley Chamber of Commerce. Corey, thank you so much for being with us. Afternoon, Jill. How are you doing? Very well. How about you? Yeah, not too bad. Uh, you, uh, along with the Abbotsford Chamber of Commerce, the Chilliwack, Greater Langley, uh, which you are with, and the Mission, have come together uh, asking that this work be uh, expedited, that uh, the work go ahead faster. Can you take us back a little bit and, and uh, kind of bring us up to date on, on what's happening with Highway 1 and specifically that stretch of the highway? Exactly, for sure. So I think the the, the, the four chambers that, that got together on this, we represent thousands of businesses and tens of thousands of employees across the, the, the Fraser Valley. And we know firsthand the barriers the highway puts up. I mean, you just, on, on, on off the top, you mentioned, I think there's not many people who have yeah, either traveled through for work or for pleasure or vacations who don't know the challenges of Highway 1. And and we're, we're really pleased to see some action on this. And I think what we're coming together to say is, is we're we're moving in the right direction, but we need to make see shovels in the ground and kind of uh, pedal pedal gas pedal down, so to speak, to get this project done as soon as possible. Because the valley is growing so fast, and what we need is infrastructure that is leading that growth, as opposed to struggling to catch up, which seems to be where we always end up. So, just to answer your question, where we are right now, I mean, if you're driving out through um, through the Langley and into the valley right now, we're we're getting underway on the expansion from two sixteenth all the way up to 264th, which that's great. Um, and what we're talking about now, it came out late last week, so I'm sure with the, ho- with the holiday weekend, many of your listeners might not have seen it. There's the plans underway now for what's going to happen from 264th all the way through to Abbotsford and into that Highway 11 connection with Mission. Um, and then they're starting to plan for the next piece of the Chilliwack. And what we're saying is is that's great, but we, we need these these expansion plans are critical, uh, but they can't come soon enough. So we want to see the province speed up if there's preloading that has to be done, if there's design work, planning, procurement, anything that we can kind of get done and off the table so that when we actually can hit uh, hit rubber hit road on this, we can get it done sooner um, is better because uh, our members, the business community, your listeners, everybody knows Highway 1 is, is grinds to a grinds to a halt for much of the much of the day and it's really holding back the growth and the potential of the whole Fraser Valley region. It seems like the widening around the 200th and as you just said the 216th it seems like that has been in place and uh, I mean for years almost to the point I mean I used to have to drive that way when I was uh, working at Global before uh, coming over here full time but I mean and again you talk to anybody that was leaving the Metro Vancouver area uh, going through that region it just seems like that that's been going on for a long time. <laughs> 
Well, exactly. And I think nothing gets cheaper or easier to build by waiting. So that's why we're saying let's get, let's reach on this. Let's punch this through to, to Highway 11 and let's get, get this done. Because as you said, a lot of these things we've been talking about for years and years and years. I mean, some of the challenges with, with access in Langley and, and with the highway or getting off of 264th into the industrial park there. I mean, these are this is a generation we've been talking about this. But you can see that's the, that's the, the challenge we have in, in, in doing these things in chunks is, yeah, it's, it's 202 was, was finished and then up to 216th was finished. But then as soon as you get past 216th, you go down to back down the two lanes, and now you're trying to crawl through two lanes all the way all the way out the valley. So what this plan will do is, is you'll have those two those two through lanes, which will continue. You'll have a third HOV lane. You'll have a fourth fourth. Uh, bus lane on the shoulder, and in some sections, a fifth uh, uh, climbing lane for trucks, so that our trucking industry is able to use that and not slow down traffic as they're going up and down um, the, the, uh, the, the the hills there. So in some areas, we're going to go from two lanes to five, which is fantastic. I mean, I've got I've got uh, hundreds of businesses that are uh, that are trying to get in and out of uh, Langley and kind of that eastern border there. And I mean, it's just it's impossible. You can't as you can imagine, if you're trying to find an employee to try to come to your business and, and take a job out there, if you're trying to get a contractor to come and fix something in your in your factory, if they're going to have to sit in, in traffic from 216th all the way out, that, that's going to really limit your options and what you can do as a business. So um, this is something that we've been talking about as a community um, for, for years and years. We're excited that we're seeing some movement on this. And we just want the, the the province if they're listening uh, to to go full bore on this and to push this through and and to not not let this be one of those things that I'm talking to you in four more years when we're still hopefully waiting for the last bit of this to finish we we want to see whatever we need to get done let's bring all the government to the table let's bring the stakeholders the cities to the table and let's get this project pushed through so that yeah we're not we're not it's not another five ten years and we're still waiting for some of these pieces to get put in place uh, it is a major roadway and uh, an artery that a lot of people use and you mentioned trucks and people that need that highway to get to where they're going and there isn't really another option. Do you think enough attention or any attention is being paid to transit options and getting more people moving on that stretch, on that corridor, but not having to drive? Well, I think that's the big challenge. I know sometimes it's chicken and egg. Do you you wait for the demand to be there and then you finally kicking and screaming, build transit and services to service that. And what we're saying perhaps is maybe we flip that around and maybe we, we have the infrastructure and the services lead the growth. I mean, for me in Langley, I've got, if you, if you can picture 264th, I mean, north of the highway there, I've got 200 businesses and over 10,000 employees. And the closest bus stop is six kilometers away. I mean, and there are people who actually walk that or they're taking Ubers to get to work. I mean, it's just, just ridiculous. And so how, do you fi- how can you find people to, to work in these spaces uh, if you don't offer any transit? I mean, the only definition you're telling them is is to take a car uh, and what does that mean for then uh, youth or newcomers or people who may not have a car but are, would love to fill some of these jobs that we're all hearing how businesses are struggling to fill labor shortages well we're, we're, we're writing off half the half the applicants because we're saying well unless you have your own private vehicle you need not apply and and those are the challenges we need to do and highway one is an integral part of that you can't put a bus uh, going into some of these areas when you have a 60 year old overpass with one lane going in and out i mean this is why we have to have that critical infrastructure in place so that we can accommodate this growth i mean everything we're talking about is is i mean look at langley we're the fastest growing community in the region look at abbotsford and chilliwack i mean so much stuff's happening out here so many businesses and people are moving into into the valley um but we can't have them all then funneling to the same two-lane highway that's been there for three generations. Like, we have to make sure that these projects, like what we're, like what the province is, is suggesting here, are done, they're invested, they're funded, and they are pushed through. And, and these things can't take 
10 years to build it. We need to be able to move these things faster. Uh, one of the numbers even put out by uh, your Chamber of Commerce and the others uh, that are part of this push is saying that the population in the Fraser Valley is expected to increase by 47 percent by 2050, which sounds uh, far away, but it's really not that far away. So with a 47 percent projection and an increase in population, is there a plan? Is there a timeline right now for what's going to happen to Highway 1? I think that's one of the pieces that we, we would like to see more clarity on is exactly what our timeline is looking like. I mean, I think part of this, the, the 264th bit and going out to Mount Lehman and, and to Highway 11, um, I think they've got construction is, is supposed to be kind of they're, they're preloading some of it and there is some construction. But the, the further pieces out to uh, the second bit of Abbotsford and out to Chilliwack, I mean, we're looking at design work and it's still in development phase. And, and those are the pieces that I would it would be unfortunate if we weren't able to find a way to get those things done. So, again, it, it, we're not... It's not 15 years out. I mean, some of these things, uh, these, these are long projects. These are big projects. But as I said earlier, nothing, nothing gets easier, faster, or cheaper the longer we wait. It's only going to be if it's a $5 billion project. If we wait 10 years, it's going to be a $10 billion project. So why don't we put some of this stuff in place now and, and, and understand that we, we know where the growth is going to be. You mentioned the population. I mean, just on, on uh, trucking, I think, the trucking demand is supposed to go up by a third. I mean, we all saw in 2021 what happens when Highway 1 is shut down with the flooding. I mean, the entire region, the province, the country uh, economy was put at, put at risk when you cut off this, this corridor. So we have to be making sure that we're investing in making sure that the Highway 1 is something that can satisfy both the needs now and ideally can be built to satisfy the needs of, of the future. I mean, and, and we're not always playing catch up because right now my businesses, the, the members of the Langley Chamber, we needed this years ago. We needed this yesterday. Um, we're thrilled to hear that, it, that we're, we're talking about it now, but let's let's get this done and then on to the next thing. And I think we need to be thinking as a region that's growing as fast as we are. I think we always need to be looking not just at what we need now, but what's coming down the road, uh, pardon the pun, uh, and, and what, do we, what are we going to be needing and making sure that we're putting the plans and the, and the money and, and the pre-work in so that we can get those things done faster because there's so much potential in the valley. There's so much potential out here. Um, but we can't harness it if we don't have the tools and the infrastructure. Well, and do you think that that potential is getting the attention that it deserves, given what we've seen as far as the transit and expansion promises for Surrey and the Broadway subway line, which is which is going ahead, which has been underway for quite some time now? I mean, those are major projects that are going ahead. Does Highway 1, is it kind of an afterthought? I would, I would hope not, and I would hope that anyone who's, who's in a, a, our decision makers who might be listening to this understand that, yeah, we, we can't have a situation where you look at look at how long Surrey has been looking for some investments, and, and Langley now, we're the fastest growing community, and Abbotsford and Chilliwack will, will be behind us. I mean, we can't have a situation where, again, we're, we're, we're playing catch-up 20 years for, later for things that we should be getting now. So I, I think there's... there's on a broader piece, I think we need to be understanding as a region there's a place for that finer-grained getting people in and out of walkable communities and, 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 uh, and density. But there's also a place and, and a role for us just funding people able to get in and out of jobs and in and out of the region. I mean, I would love to be able to offer my, my businesses here a bunch of different transit options. There isn't one. So perhaps before other areas get their 12th, maybe parts of, <laughs> parts of the Valley, parts of Langley could get something uh, to our area. So as I said, I've got 10,000 employees who'd love to maybe look at a bus route if there was anything within, yeah, six or seven kilometers of them. So I think there's a role to play in that, in that model of how do we get people from 
homes and into businesses and into employment. And if we can get somebody out of their car for, for that Monday to Friday, I think it's going to be a lot easier to get them out of their car on Saturday, go to the grocery store. Um, but I think we have to get that piece done first because if they have to have a private vehicle to get anywhere in, in and out of the, of the Fraser Valley, well, then they're going to use that, that personal vehicle for all their other trips too. So I think they go hand in hand. I don't think we should be looking at one or the other or pitting parts of the region against each other, but I think we need to be looking at a broader, a broader understanding of, of kind of what the infrastructure needs are. And I'm optimistic. I'm pleased to see that, that we've got this plan here, that, they're, that they're, we are moving forward finally on Highway 1. We are moving forward finally on transit, hopefully to Gloucester and the Industrial Park in Langley. Um, and let's just, our message is, Let's get it done. Let's not stop there, and let's push this forward because we all know uh, where what the needs are going to be in, in five or ten years uh, if we don't do something now. So uh, good good work from the ministry, and, and let's keep at it. And our chambers are coming together this day. Um, this, this needs to be happening as fast as we can, and, and I think there's all sorts of ways that we can find to, to move projects a, a little bit faster, make things a little bit quicker, and if, if we can push all of those buttons and pull those levers, then hopefully we can get Highway 1 uh, paved and open a little bit faster than maybe otherwise. All right. Uh, Corey, thank you so much. Great to have you on the show talking about this, and we'll talk to you again soon. Uh, thanks so much, Jill. And if any, any of your listeners want to give their own input, the province is taking feedback until September 15th. So if anybody else thinks that uh, Highway 1 is, is a priority, uh, there's, there's an opportunity for them to, to give their own feedback on that. But I appreciate the chance to have a chat with you. Thanks so much, Jill. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, we are taking a look at a very well-known piece of property in Vancouver. If you've ever been to the Kingsgate Mall, you know it is located at Kingsway and Broadway in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood. It is also part of the Vancouver School Board's real estate portfolio, but for how long? Well, Francis Bula is joining us now to talk more about this. Francis writes for the Globe and Mail and has written a new piece about this particular subject. Francis, thank you so much for taking some time today. Well, thanks for being interested in what is a very strange uh, real estate uh, situation of interest to a lot of people. Like many law firms are following this really closely and have posted, you know, have blog posts about it because it's a key piece of real estate. There's been a lot of legal maneuvering around it. Um, Yeah, and the latest um, Supreme Court ruling that's only partway through the case, um, you know, it had this interesting line in it that a VSB representative testified that they are looking to resell, redevelop, rezone something, something to it. Yeah. So take us back a little bit because there's so much going on with this story as well. So this is a piece of real estate that the school board owns. It was originally a school. It hasn't been a school for years, but now it's kind of the subject of this legal dispute. And like you just said, the future of this mall, throw the Broadway plan in there too. The future of this mall and this piece of property seems very unclear. Yeah, and I mean, obviously the reason I was alerted to it is the school board currently does seem to be going through some kind of exercise of looking at whether they have disposable properties, clearly trying to like make some money off land that they own. The Kingsgate Mall has always been of interest. Like 10 years ago, people were talking about maybe it was going to be redeveloped, obviously with the Broadway plan now. I just looked at the zoning map, and weirdly, 
There isn't any height specified for that particular lot and in the Broadway plan, but you have to believe that they'd be thinking of at least 30 or 40 stories, given that it's right across the street practically from the future subway station, and that's the kind of height they're looking at, you know, at, that, that, that they approved at Granville and Broadway. So, um, and but it's a complicated piece of property because the, the school board owns it, but since 1972, they've leased it out long term. Uh, and another company called Royal Oak had it for a long time, and then BD Developments uh, took over the lease in 2005 um, from Royal Oak. Uh, and they've been running them all since then, um, uh, paying what they thought was the agreed on terms, which is eight and a quarter percent of whatever the value of the property is as it is now, not with rezoning, not with what it might be in the future, but what could be done immediately. And uh, that's kind of what's in dispute. But what I found strange about it was that the VSB, it was settled in 1999, how to interpret that contract, and now they've reopened it. So there, clearly there's some interest on their part in doing something there. Right. And when you say it was settled, was that also a court action or the courts became involved? Um, it was. Uh, the, at that time, Royal Oak and the VSB went to a commercial arbitration board. And that board ruled two to one back in 1999 that, um, you know, the, 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 the rent should be based on what uh, the value of that property was uh, in its immediate future. So it couldn't be if they went through a two-year zoning, rezoning process. So that was the ruling back then. Uh, the the board tried to challenge it at the Supreme Court and got turned down. So it seemed like that was settled back in 99, but now it's been reopened. And I don't know if they did it because the Broadway plan made them feel like, no, there's really just so much market value there that we have to change our rent calculations or what. But, you know, it's a big difference for BD who's been leasing it, um, a, a difference of, I think he's paying a million and a half in rent plus the taxes as you have to in Vancouver when you're, when you're leasing, um, it would go to 9.5 million a year or something like that, which it's kind of hard to see how that mall <laughs> could generate enough money. I love that mall. I go there all the time. Uh, I, I really adore it. It's one of the most useful malls in Vancouver. It has, you know, liquor store, grocery, three cell phone companies and, you know, um, various other things. But uh, it's hard to imagine that it could generate $9.5 million in revenue. Yeah, that is interesting. And, and I get what you're saying about the mall as well. I have a, a dear friend who will argue anybody who wants to that you can get everything you need at the Kingsgate Mall. Any day of the year, you can get it at that mall and it very, it serves the neighbourhood very, very well. Uh, do you get the impression then that this is back in court? Is it that the school board wants to sell it out or they want to be the ones to, to be back in charge of it and, and redevelop it? Yeah, it's a bit hard to tell because all I have to go on is what the lawsuit says or what the Supreme Court judgment said. And the judge said a VSB representative came and testified that they want to rezone, resell or develop. So it's not clear what, I mean, I imagine they'd partner with a developer and, and do something kind of like what they did with their property at Broadway and Granville when they 
redid uh, that block where the aristocratic cafe used to be. Sorry, now I sound really like an old fart, but <laughs> <laughs> but so they probably partner uh, with uh, someone, uh, but they might choose just to sell it off, and obviously that has parent advocates in the city um, worried because this is this board seems to be on a bit of a binge of selling things off or, or leasing it. And, and people are worried that they're going to lose control of valuable land assets that they'll never be able to get back again. And the idea there being that if they did redevelop it, as long as the school board owns it, here we have a community that's going to have a lot more people in it that they would potentially uh, have the, the option of a school could go there or that it would be lost as school space forever. Yeah, no, I think ideally what people see is that what it could be redeveloped and it could, uh, you know, have two schools in it and, you know, sort of some administration space and it could have some workforce housing. You could even maybe have some housing dedicated to teachers. Um, you know, it could be a really valuable community asset. Um, but, you know, you'd need the school board to be in control and asking for those kinds of spaces, uh, and uh, so it would ha- the board would have to be involved in some way. If they just turned it over and let some developer do whatever on it, I think people feel that that wouldn't serve the community the best. You mentioned too that that this is all information that that you've gotten from this uh, the lawsuit from from the court. Where do you see it going from here, or what stage is it at at this point? Um, I think it's going to. Uh, I mean, uh, BD is a is appealing it is appealing and so it's going to have to go to an appeal and then we'll see what happens from there well it uh, certainly is an interesting one with so many different players and like you said people do love that mall mm-hmm. and it is such a, a an anchor in that community francis we'll leave mm-hmm. it there for today but thank you so much for joining the show okay thank you so much okay Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.